Now this morning, we're starting a brand new series this morning, going through the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And can you guess what we're calling this series? Some of you are observant, the rest of you, God bless you. Maybe, maybe you need some glasses this morning, I don't know. The Christ is King is the name of our series going through Matthew's Gospel, and that is the main uh, point that Matthew is driving home as he writes this Gospel for us, that Christ is King, that Jesus reigns. How many of you love that psalm that we opened up with this morning? The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Amen. And for the rest of you, we opened up with a psalm this morning uh, that said, the Lord reigns, and uh, it was a wonderful reading of that psalm. Now, as I was getting ready to uh, preach through Matthew's gospel, which I really felt strongly from the Lord to do, I began to do some research and see how long it had taken other preachers to preach through Matthew's gospel. I came across one preacher that took him three years and I thought, wow, that's a, that's a long, it is a long book. It is 28 chapters. Okay, three years. The next preacher I looked up, it took him eight years to go through Matthew's gospel. So I don't know how long it will take, but we will be in this gospel for a long time. I do know that. It's going to be a, 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 a wonderful journey going through Matthew's gospel. Now, there are four, four gospels. The New Testament opens with these Four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for many today uh, who, who know these gospel accounts, many would say that John is their favorite gospel. And I would include myself in uh, that, the company of those that would say that. I love the gospel of John. The gospel of John is my favorite. However, Matthew's gospel was the favorite gospel of the early church. The early church fathers, for the first several hundred years, they quote more from Matthew's gospel than any of the other gospel accounts. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that Matthew has an incredible continuity with the Old Testament, as we'll see as we get into it this morning. It really provides this beautiful transition from the Old to the New Testament. And the second reason is that Matthew's gospel contains so much of Jesus's teaching. The words of Christ, if you have a Bible that have the words of Jesus in red, most of Matthew's gospel will be those red words. In fact, 60% of Matthew's gospel are the words of Jesus Christ. In fact, many have claimed and called this book, the book of Matthew, to be the greatest book that has ever been written. And it begins with an interesting section. It begins with the very first few verses are a section of scripture that many of us probably skip over when we read the Bible. It's a genealogy. It's not the most exciting thing. Uh, it's a list of names. It's a family tree. And we as Christians, especially modern Christians, we get to these lists. They're in the Old Testament. Here's one here in the New Testament. This genealogy, this list of names. And we tend to skim through it, if we're being honest, or skip it altogether, if we're really being honest. And I understand that. It's somewhat understandable. 
because not only are many of these names in this list unknown to us, they're also unpronounceable to us. And so we sort of say, if I can't even read it, I'll just sort of skip to this end of this paragraph. But we're not going to skip this unknowable, unreadable passage this morning. In fact, it's in here for a reason, and we're going to see that today. And truly, it's because of this list of names, it's because of this family tree and this genealogy that Matthew's original readers, the original readers and, and hearers of this account, it's because of this list that they would have paid attention to his claims about Jesus. As he unfolds the story of Jesus' life and, and birth and, and ministry and death and burial and resurrection, as he unfolds these claims, it was, it was vitally important that he began his story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus with this family tree. And so we're going to read through it. It follows a repetitious pattern, which again might put you into a hypnotic state. We'll see. However, at certain key points, Matthew breaks the pattern. And when he breaks this pattern, he's doing so to emphasize something in particular. And so as I read through it this morning, see if you can discover, see if you can pick up on the emphasis that he's making as he breaks the pattern. Now, I've practiced this many times, trying to pronounce these names. I will not claim that I'm going to do a great job, but I am going to do a job as we move through this this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the, de the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, 
Eleazar, the father of Mathan, the father, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, we thank you for your word. All of it is inspired. All of it is God-breathed. All of it is profitable to us for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Lord, that through your word, you equip us as your people to live as your people and to bring you glory through our lives. Lord, none of us uh, is, uh, stands alone as, as detached from our ancestry. Lord, you brought us into the world through a family just as you brought Jesus into a family. And Lord, I pray as we study about this family that you would help us to understand how it is you want us to live. Lord, in the families that you've placed us, in the communities that you've placed us. Lord, even in the, the wider reach that all of us have because none of us is an island unto ourselves and all of our lives touch others. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as you have touched our lives, we would extend that touch and that love and that mercy and that grace that we have received, that we would extend it to others. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. I read that list of names. I struggled the most with the word deportation, so there you go. You just never know how these things are going to go sometimes. Uh, before we get into looking at why this list of names is so important, not only to the readers who first read it in the first century, but also to us today who live in the 21st century, before we look at that, I want to take a very brief look at the author of Matthew's Gospel, the disciple named Matthew. And so if you'll flip with me a few pages forward in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we see the account of Matthew, his, his story. It's very brief. He doesn't write a lot about himself, but he does tell the story of how he came to follow Christ. And so as we're launching out this morning, I want to look at this because it helps us to understand his writing and, and who he was. It helps us to understand the story that he is telling. And so Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, the house of Matthew, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn this, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We're introduced to Matthew here as a tax collector. Matthew was someone who worked for Rome. 
Rome had occupied Israel some 60 years prior to the birth of Christ. And so now as Jesus is uh, 30 years old, the Bible tells us, Rome has occupied uh, the, the nation of Israel for nearly 90 years. They've lived under 90 years of Roman occupation. And what the Romans would do is they would go in and they would defeat a people and then they would uh, tax that people and they would generate revenue from uh, the peoples that they conquered. And Israel was one of those conquered people living under Roman occupation and Roman rule. And so there was a Roman government installed. They, they, they weren't able to rule themselves and govern themselves. They were governed by the empire of Rome. And what, the way this would work is that the, these contracts would be written for taxation. And wealthy senators and other Romans uh, would bid on these contracts for the taxation of a province. And people would bid on these. They would win the contracts. And then everything that they brought in over and above that contract, they were able to keep for themselves. And so these wealthy senators and these other wealthy Romans would bid on these contracts, win the contract, and then they would hire foot soldiers, if you will, tax collectors, if you will, to go in and to collect the taxes from the people. And whatever the tax collectors brought in over and above what their, uh, the, the wealthy uh, person who owned the contract brought in, they would be able to keep. And so there's two levels of grift that's happening here and and corruption that's happening here uh, from the people. And so the the tax collectors that's being hired, Matthew is one of them, they were typically hired from the native people of of the, the, the group that had been conquered. So Matthew is a Jew. He's a Jewish person. He has a Jewish name. He has a Jewish upbringing, but he has sold out his own people to get in bed with the occupying force, with the enemy, to do the work of the enemy. And so tax collectors were despised. They're lumped into the worst category of people all the time. Here we see Jesus, and the people who come to him are called tax collectors and sinners. Other times they're lumped in with prostitutes. And thieves, they're, they're just, they're, they're very much despised in the culture of the day, not only because they're the tax man, but because they've sold out their own people to get in bed with a foreign occupying state. And so Matthew would have lived a life separated from his community, community an outcast. He would have been kicked out of the synagogue, the, the Jewish community of faith. He wouldn't have been able to worship God. He, he was an outcast. An outcast from society, an outcast from his family. No one would associate with them because they were doing the work of the enemy. They were the ultimate pragmatists in this sense. They understood that, well, somebody's going to do this job and somebody's going to get wealthy. Might as well be me. So they had no, they had no strong moral fiber. They had no moral convictions. They sold their morality on the altar of profit, on the altar of wealth, and they turned on their own people. And so Matthew was a traitor. He was despised. And then Jesus walks by his booth one day and says, Matthew, you're going to follow me. You have a new boss. 
You've been working for one kingdom. Guess what? Now you're going to be working for my kingdom. And he calls this tax collector. And I'm sure his other disciples, when that happened, would have been looking at Jesus like, what are you doing? And Jesus at that point would have looked at them and said, have you taken a look in the mirror lately, guys? You're all a motley crew. And so Jesus puts together this incredible collection of people uh, from every really walk of life. Fishermen, uh, insurrectionists, Simon the Zealot, a tax collector. Uh, he, he brings them all together and he calls them to himself. And, and later that night, as, as Matthew invites Jesus and his followers to his home, other tax collectors come, other sinners come. And the Pharisees are very upset about this, that Jesus is associating with this type of people that they would not associate with. And Jesus says, don't you understand? I came to seek and to save that which is lost. That, that you have kicked these people out, but who is going to bring them in? Jesus is the one who brings in the outcast. Jesus is the one who who brings in the, those that society looks down upon. If you read the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that none of us are, are, are from noble birth. None of us have a strong pedigree. That, that Christ calls the outcasts. Christ calls the, the weak. Christ calls those who need a savior, who need a physician, of which you and I are in that category, whether you know it. Or not. Of course, the Pharisees were in that category. The problem was they were simply blind by their own self-righteousness. And so Matthew's story is a story of personal redemption. That Jesus had redeemed him, that Jesus had saved him, that Jesus had called him back into the fold. Matthew's not writing as he writes this, this story, this history. He's not writing as some detached historian hundreds of years after the fact. No, Matthew's writing as an eyewitness. Matthew's not only writing an eyewitness account, but he's writing as someone who had been changed by Jesus, as someone who had his life redeemed and transformed by the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so as we turn back to Matthew chapter 1, we need to keep in mind that, that Matthew is writing a story of redemption. A redemption story, a story that he himself has been redeemed by. And so back to this original question, why does Matthew begin his gospel this way? Well, I'll give you three reasons this morning that this is important for us and very helpful. The first is that this genealogy, it serves as a wonderful bridge to what came before. It serves as a wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, it puts in there a very smooth and natural transition. This genealogy, as it says here in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this word genealogy in the Greek is literally the word Genesis. Literally the word Genesis. And so as he sits down and he, he writes and he says, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. He, he's, he's saying that, that, that there is something new that's happening here. There, there is a new genesis. There is a, a new beginning. 
that what came before was important, and he shows it's important by listing this genealogy, but what he's saying is that what comes after this is new. What comes after this is a new family tree, a new genesis, a new beginning, that through Christ there is now a new family tree. You see, the Old Testament was the story of Adam's family. Not the Adam's family, but it's the story of Adam's family. And Adam's family tree is a a dark and, and sordid tale of sin. Adam, the first man, plunging the human race headlong into sin. And sin begins to grow and sin begins to multiply and sin begins to produce its effects of death within Adam's family. But here it says this is the book of the genealogy, the the genesis of Jesus' family. This new family that God is creating in Christ. But this leads us to the second point for us, that it establishes Jesus and his life in history. That, That Matthew's not writing a fable. Matthew's not writing just some tale. Matthew's not writing just a a fairy tale. This is not like Aesop's fables or or Cinderella. He he orients this gospel in history. That Jesus is, is the product and comes in the middle, in the midst of human history. This is not fiction that Matthew is writing. He is writing as a historian and he lists Real people who lived real lives that preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the third reason why this is important for us. Is that it establishes Jesus' birthright to the throne of David. It establishes Jesus as a descendant of King David. What Matthew is saying here is that Jesus has royal blood in his veins. And while, yes, Jesus is doing something new, he's not doing something detached. He's not doing something that's disconnected from everything that God has been doing all along throughout human history. Matthew is not writing into a vacuum. He's not writing into a void. He comes in about the year 4,000, which is 0 AD for us. There have been 4,000 years of human history, 4,000 years of God dealing with man, 4,000 years of God working through mankind, working through Adam's family to bring the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. You see, there is a long history that was written up until this point. All the way back to Adam in the garden. All the way back to the promise that God had made that that one day there would be someone who would come and reverse the curse. There would be someone who would come and, and crush the head of the serpent. There would be someone who would come, a victorious king who would conquer on behalf of his people. All of these promises that God had been making for some 4,000 years, Matthew grounds the life of Jesus firmly in that history of redemption. 
Some 129 times in Matthew's gospel, he quotes from the Old Testament. He pulls in from the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes and and he quotes from the scripture and he talks about how Jesus is fulfilling what had been spoken by the prophets. Fifteen times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses, uh, Matthew uses the word fulfilled to talk about what Jesus has done. That Jesus fulfilled the prophetic writings that had come before him. You see, God had been making these promises to his people about a future king and about a future kingdom. It was one of the main emphases of the Old Testament prophets, this future king and kingdom. We see in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7 where the prophet makes a promise to David that he will have one of his descendants, one of his bloodline who will sit upon a throne and who will reign over a kingdom that will be established forever. A kingdom without end. David was promised a descendant of his that would reign on his throne and reign over a kingdom like that. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that that this king not only reigns over Israel, but that this king reigns from heaven over all the nations of the earth. That Jesus is not just the king of Israel, that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that Jesus is the king of the nations. Psalm chapter 2 tells us that. Daniel chapter 7, let's flip back to Daniel chapter 7 for a moment. Daniel in the Old Testament. This prophetic vision that God gave to Daniel of the Messiah, of of the Christ, of the one who would come, the king. Daniel 7, verse 15. Verse 13. Daniel 7, 13. Daniel writing, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the people of God, the people of Israel, at the time that Matthew is writing, they are waiting for that king. They are waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he had made to his people. They're waiting for one who will receive from the ancient of days a kingdom from every nation, from every language, from every culture. A kingdom that is filled with dominion and glory and that it's a dominion that is everlasting. A kingdom that will never pass away. This was the promise that God had made. And his people were eagerly awaiting this king and this kingdom. If you'll flip back with me to Isaiah from Daniel, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 
Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not something Hallmark invented to sell Christmas cards. This is the hope of Israel. This is the hope of the nations. That one day there will be given a child. A son will be born. And upon his shoulders will rest the governments of the nations. And that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But it goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And who is this king and what, what throne will he sit on? He says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and from forevermore. From, from the time that he is born, from the time that he comes, from the time that this child is born, this kingdom will come and this kingdom will be established and it will be from this time until forevermore. It will be from this time until eternity. It's not that it comes later in history. No, Jesus came and he established this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. It is the passion of God to accomplish this. It is this that the people of God were waiting for. When will this descendant of David come? When will this king come who will sit on David's throne and who will rule and reign over the nations and who will rule and reign in righteousness and in justice and who will uphold his word in the nations? If you flip back with me one more page to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, 14. What will be the sign that this is the king that we have been waiting for? What will be the sign that we can know who this king is? Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Not only this, Micah 5.2 tells us the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem. We, we know so much about who the Messiah would be from the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah 53 tells us not only will this king come and will he establish the kingdom of God and will he establish it with justice and righteousness, but Isaiah 53 says that he will be pierced for our sins, that he will be wounded for our iniquities, that our sin will be laid upon him, that he will be crushed under the wrath of God, not for his own sin, but for our sin, that he will redeem his people from their sin. Psalm 16 tells us that, that this one will, 
will not rot in the grave, but that he will rise again from death? That corruption will not set into his body, but that he will be given a resurrected body and a glorified body? And that he will rise from the dead, ascend into heaven as the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days, and be given a kingdom that will never end. Now, none of these writers here in the Old Testament, as they, they were inspired by God to make these proclamations of the Messiah, none of them in and of themselves possessed the whole picture. None of them in and of themselves had a clear picture of who the Messiah would be. But together, all of these different authors, inspired by one true author, the Holy Spirit, together they paint a portrait. They weave together a tapestry of the king who would conquer, not through the sword, but he would conquer through laying down his life. He would conquer through suffering and conquer through death. But again, he would rise and ascend to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There are some 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills perfectly. And his people, the people of God, were living and waiting in anticipation for this Savior, this Deliverer, this Messiah. And Matthew's opening line to his gospel declares unambiguously, declares without any question, declares with utter clarity that Jesus is that Messiah. That Jesus is that Savior. That Jesus is that King. Because you see here that he says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. They didn't write Jesus Christ on his birth certificate. Christ is his title. Christ is his office. Christ is his position. It's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word for Messiah. The Hebrew word for Savior. The Hebrew word which meant anointed one. The one who had been anointed by God to accomplish everything the prophets had foretold. Matthew says at the beginning, and he's writing to his own people, he's writing to the Jewish people, he says, our Messiah has come. Our Savior is here. And he begins by telling of his family line, by telling of his pedigree. You see, for the Jewish reader, they would have said, well, he has to be a son of David. And Matthew would have said, he's a son of David. Here's his genealogy. And Matthew, uniquely as a tax collector, would have had access to the genealogical records to tell the story of the, 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 the line of, of David that follows to Joseph, his stepdad, and then the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. Three times in this passage, Matthew calls Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. But not only is he the son of David, as verse 1 tells us, verse 1 also tells us that, Math, that, that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. Tracing, 
David's lineage back to Abraham. You see, God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, that in your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.16 tells us that Jesus is that singular fulfillment of that prophetic utterance. That Jesus is the singular offspring of Abraham that God had promised. You see, through David, Jesus had the right to the throne of Israel. But through Abraham, Jesus reigns over the nations. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said Jesus, as the son of David, restores the kingdom to Israel. But as the son of Abraham, Jesus brings the kingdom of God to the whole world. And Matthew's gospel ends with the great declaration of Jesus in Matthew 28, the great commission where Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You see, the scope of the redeeming work of the Christ, of the Messiah, wasn't only for Israel. Yes, it is to the Jew first, but it's also to the Greek, and it's also to the Gentiles. It's to everyone that the Lord our God would call to himself. None of us is disqualified from the, the saving work of the Messiah. It is for the whole world. The blessing of Abraham is for the nations. And it makes it clear, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the king of which the prophets spoke. 144 times the New Testament makes the claim that Jesus is reigning now presently over a kingdom. 35 times in the New Testament Jesus is directly called king. Christ is king. And 548 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Christ. And every time he's called the Christ, they're calling him the King of Kings. You see, not only is the Messiah the Christ, the King of Israel, he is the King of the nations. Christ is King. Not only, it's not just that he will be King at the end of history. No, he rules and reigns today. He rules and reigns today, seated at the right hand of God as king of the nations. Which leaves us with the question, what kind of king is he? And here, even in the genealogy, even in these opening lines, Matthew begins to give us hints of what kind of king Jesus Christ is. He's not simply establishing his pedigree, which he is, but he's also telling us the kind of king that he will be. Three things that we pull from this. We see that he is humble. We see that this king is humble. He's not born in a palace somewhere. He's born to Jesse. He's born to the carpenter of Nazareth. Nazareth was a podunk little town that no one knew of. Nazareth was despised in Jesus' day. I don't know what kind of podunk town you can think of, but Nazareth was more podunk than... I don't even know what podunk means. It's little, it's small, it's insignificant. Even in Jesus' day, they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Joseph is, is not the governor there. Joseph is not the mayor there. Joseph is not someone of renown there. Joseph is a blue-collar guy. He's a working man, just working to put food on the table for his family. He's a carpenter. Jesus spends the first 30 years of his life as a carpenter's son, not born in a palace, but born in a stable. He is a humble king. He's also a gracious king. As you look at this lineage that he comes from, it reads like a who's who of sinners. I could spend time here every day drawing out for you the sin of these people. Every single one of them was a sinner who needed a savior. Every single one of them was only brought into the family of God by the sheer mercy and grace of our God expressed in Jesus Christ. This is a gracious king. And the third thing we see from this list is that this is a redemptive king. In this list, we see something unusual for genealogies at the time. We see here listed four women. There's four women listed here in this genealogy. What's interesting about all four of these women is they were all Gentiles. They were not Jews by birth. They were Gentiles. The second thing about these, all four of these women is they have a compromised sexual history. Several of them were prostitutes. One of them was an adulteress. One of them uh, had uh, a husband who had died. Uh, two of them had husbands who had died. And, and one of them was, did something rather promiscuous to woo her future husband. They, they all, have a, they all are, are compromised. They all are, are, are what the world would look at, and, and especially in, in uh, Jesus' day. And they, they were not people that you would bring into the royal line, yet Matthew specifically mentions these Gentiles with a clouded history showing that God's grace and God's redemption extends as far and as wide as his love can go. That, that there, is no, there is no limit to the depths and the heights and the width of the love of God. That God's love reaches down to the darkest pit. That God's grace and his mercy and his redemption reaches farther than we think it should go. He brings in those with compromised histories. He brings in those with clouded past. He brings in the broken. He brings in the sinner. He brings in those outcasts. He brings in those who others wouldn't associate with. All four of these women that are named, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all of these Gentile women showing us that not only is Jesus the humble king, not only is he the gracious king, but that Jesus is the redemptive king. He's the one that takes the broken story of our life and redeems us to himself. He is the king of redemption. 
And Matthew is writing this story as one who had experienced that in a very personal way. As he himself had made some really bad decisions, some really bad life choices, as he himself had turned his back on his own people, he's writing to say, God never turned his back on me. That Jesus came and sought me out and that Jesus called me out of the crowd. A sinner, but he redeemed me by his love, an outcast and a broken man. Just as Jesus redeemed these women in the Old Testament, he has redeemed me with his love and he likewise will redeem you and your life and your story. And that is the story that Matthew is writing as he's telling us about Christ the King, but he's also telling us about Christ the Redeemer. Amen. We all come to Jesus broken. We're all broken because of sin. There's not a one of us in here today just as this list of, of people on here. Every single one of them is a sinner who needs a Savior. So is all of us in here. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And all of us have brought death into our lives through sin. But, the Bible says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so that all who would turn to Christ in faith, all who would turn to Christ in repentance, all who would turn to Christ as king will receive the grace and the mercy and the love and the redemption that only Jesus can bring. We make a mess of our lives and Jesus straightens it out. We clothe ourselves in sin and iniquity and Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. Jesus puts us on the pathway to fulfill our destiny. See, God had a plan and a purpose for each one of these ladies mentioned here. God had a plan and a purpose for Matthew and God has a plan and a purpose for you. And your family history, I don't know what it was, it, and in and Adam, we all have a broken family history. We, you don't have to go back very far before you find some serious sin in all of our family histories. But in Christ, there is a new family. In Christ, we have been brought in. We have been redeemed and we are being restored. In Christ, we are not part of that old family anymore. In Christ... God is our Father. God is our Father. And He gives us a new nature. And He transforms our character to line up with the character of Christ. And He helps us to do it by putting His Spirit in our hearts and giving us His Word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so there is a future for all who would call on Christ, who all who would be a part of His family, Satan is a liar and he wants to deceive you by telling you that there's no future, that there's no hope because of what you have done or because of what has been done to you in your life. It's a lie. With Jesus, there is a new future. With Jesus, there is hope for everyone who would call upon him, for everyone who he calls unto himself. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior and as your King the offer of the cross, the offer of redemption, the offer of his atoning work for you is on the table. 
And in Christ today, God is calling you unto himself. Just as he called Matthew, he is calling your name today. Just as he called out Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, he calls out you today by name to receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and your new future. A future that only he can give you because only he is your creator and only he will recreate your life. Turn to Christ today. Forsake any other savior that you are pursuing Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. There is none other. Every other thing that we seek to save us, we will find it produces death in our lives. But Christ is truly the one who is the Christ, who truly has the power to save and to save us to the core. It is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and our time together in your word. What a joy it is, Lord, to learn about you, to learn about the redemption that you bring. Lord, as we spend the next few uh, season of time working through uh, Matthew's gospel, that you would uh, continue to speak to us and, and to press these truths deep into our hearts and to help us to live that redemption life that you've given to us in Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.